everyone, Alice here. I wanted to pop in before this week's episode to invite you to participate in Parkitecture, an international design contest created by World Urban Parks. Win up to $25,000 by creating an innovative proposal to redesign a park in Culiacán, Mexico. Submit your design on your own or in a team of up to three persons. Remember that you can participate from all around the world. The deadline for submission is October 10, 2023. So find out more and register for the contest by visiting worldurbanparks.org and look for the Parkitecture section on the main menu. That is worldurbanparks.org. Enjoy your episode. Welcome back to Pod Parks. I am so excited to share this week's episode with you. For centuries, we've known parks are good for us. But it hasn't been until the past few decades that researchers began to try to uncover what makes parks so beneficial to our well-being. And today, we're going to discover what we know and what we don't know about the relationships between parks and health. Hippocrates once said that nature itself is the best physician. And we have known for millennia that there is an intrinsic relationship between the natural world and our well-being. After all, we we are nature. We're part of this green world that we've been trying to escape for the past couple of centuries. From our first civilizations, we knew certain herbs and plants had medicinal purposes. And if we fast forward to the 19th century, the first public parks were designed to add healthy years to the lives of the working population and to promote physical activity. The first park planners even talked about the need for places to walk and jog, but also spaces that promoted mental restoration. So we've always kind of known and accepted that green spaces are good for us. But as huge developments in the fields of health and clinical science and technology took place in the 20th century, much of the research dedicated to health shifted focus to the individual aspects of health, to clinical aspects of health. And it wasn't until the past few decades that scientists really began to try to understand the complex relationship between the natural environment and our health. We're still learning a lot. So green spaces, parks, and human health is something very new in the public health area. This is Dr. David Rojas, epidemiologist and assistant professor at Colorado State University. Dr. Rojas is among the growing number of epidemiologists and public health practitioners who are studying the relationship between public spaces and parks. So uh, if if you think in the public health perspective, certainly parks have a lot of health benefits. So there and there is a lot of evidence in different dimensions of health, from physical health. So physical health means like more physical activity, improving air quality, but also for mental health. Just looking at the green of vegetation, all already reduces the stress, but also the social interaction and delight. So there are many mental health benefits, well-being, social, physical, and mental well-being. Parks are very special spaces, if you think about it, because they combine two different settings, nature and community. Now, we know nature and vegetation are associated with a number 
of benefits for human health. We often call these the ecosystem services of parks and urban green spaces. Those improvements in the environment that the parks itself can provide, mainly through the vegetation that exists. And we can benefit from those too. The heat, the humidity, their quality, all of those are modified by the type of vegetation, the quantity of vegetation, the availability of parks, and the proximity to those two people. And thinking that uh, human health, you need to be exposed to those things that are good for health and be far from those things that are at risk for health. As Dr. Rojas mentions, parks offer this duality of exposing us to things that are good for our health and also shielding us from things that are bad for our health. So for example, parks provide shade, humidity, and a respite from warm weather. Trees can help us breathe fresh air and serve as a physical shield from pollution. In general, parks are also places where people can walk or will be inclined to do physical activity like jogging or cycling or yoga, you know, skipping about. So they promote a more active lifestyle than other parts of the city, say a busy street. That enough is a huge benefit for our health and can help combat the otherwise sedentary lifestyle that many of us city dwellers have really grown used to. But there is more to it, and many public health professionals have spent the last several decades trying to understand what it is about parks that makes us happier and healthier. Dr. Rojas, for example, described to us how this research can take place. So we have epidemiological studies, studies that we follow volunteers through years to see healthy volunteers to ask you providers to share with us information about your lifestyle, medications, health status, if you have any disease or not, do you eat well, what kind of diet have, habits like smoking, drinking, physical activity, uh, and occupations, what kind of jobs they have, and where they live. With that information, we follow those individuals through years, and we know where they live, where they work, and we are able to locate what is nearby their homes or their offices or their workplaces, including parks. And we can analyze how parks factor in the health of those individuals through years. Through these long-term clinical studies, researchers can track not only how people physically react immediately when stepping into a park, but how these interactions add up. You know, in other words, how being exposed over and over and over again to a park or a garden near work or near your house can affect how people develop illnesses in longer periods of time. What we have found during those studies is that people who have more vegetations around home, including who have more parks around home, have less probabilities to develop anxiety or depression, dementia, uh, through their lives. So that is an important factor, is not only improve your mood or reduce your your stress, but also the capacity to reduce a new disease to be developed through the lives. So this is very important. So in addition to those that already have the disease, imagine you have a group of individuals already have anxiety or depressions. 
green spaces and vegetation also have the capacity to reduce the intensity of the disease, to improve the outcomes when they already have medications or treatment. So in addition to prevent the disease, for those that already have the disease, green spaces and parks have the, the capacity to improve the prognosis and the management. Spending time in nature relieves stress. So accessing parks consistently throughout our lives not only prevents diseases that are highly linked to stress, like anxiety or dementia, but it can also help manage and treat these illnesses. Our brain is hooked on nature. Again, it is part of nature. And although researchers are still trying to work out if different hypotheses to describe exactly how nature influences our body chemistry in such just tangible ways, we know that being around it, being around nature, helps our brain develop in a healthier way. Dr. Catherine Ward-Thompson, professor of landscape architecture at the University of Edinburgh, has been researching the relationship between access to parks and cognitive aging. More recently, I've been lucky to work with health geographers and epidemiologists and psychologists, including working with older people who have been looking at a range of outcomes in older age that could be related to where those people spent different decades of their life from childhood onwards. So we have a fantastic opportunity with a cohort of people who are aging in Edinburgh and around the Edinburgh area to look at, for example, how close they lived to public parks when they were children aged 11 or under. And we found that we can predict uh, cognitive aging slope. So the cognitive aging process, which we're all likely to go through, is slower in people who had good access, close access to public parks in childhood than those who didn't. Cognitive aging is the natural process in which older adults experience a decline in cognitive functions, like memory, language, attention, speed. As Dr. Ward Thompson explains, children's proximity to public parks is directly related to how fast or slow their cognitive aging process will be when they grow old. But if you didn't grow up close to a park, don't panic just yet, because the study goes on. And that's improved if you also had good access to public parks in adulthood. And we see a stronger pattern for low, people of low socioeconomic status and women. And this is a pattern that we see in other outcomes as well. So um, what we've been calling the life course of place, uh, the kind of places we spend our lives in at different points in our lives have an impact on us, particularly as we age. And we're all very interested in the challenges of an aging society at the moment and understanding what it is about where we live that might influence that healthy old age or not uh, is important. And there is some separate evidence on the importance of access to green space for pregnant women's health and for healthy birth outcome. So we are perhaps even seeing that pre-birth during pregnancy a child's opportunities in life may be affected by their mother's ability to access or not access green space. Let's stop right there. So where we live now not only affects 
how we currently feel, how much we go out and socialize and exercise, but also how fast and how healthy we'll age and and sometimes our children's birth outcome and whether we might develop physical or mental illnesses along our lives. There is in no doubt a positive relationship between access to parks and our well-being. And this is why new public health visions are advocating for equity and park access. Some of the most recent research about nature and health um, is exploring dosage. Mm -hmm. The idea of how much time, what kinds of spaces, what type of exposure, not unlike the medical model of dosage if you get medication or medicines from a doctor or a health care provider. This is Dr. Kathleen Wolf, environmental psychologist and researcher at the University of Washington. So um, the studies are suggesting that about 20 to 30 minutes per session and about 120 minutes per week of time in nature is great for mental and physical benefit. Now, if you spend more time outdoors, that's fine, but you see sort of a peak in terms of the response, the, the evidence, the response of people to these spaces. So 20 to 30 minutes, thinking about, well, how much space is that? And connectivity is really important so that people can move either within a park or from park to park. And so there's a sense of you can move around and have options and choices in how you spend that 20 to 30 minutes per session. If we think about this dosage of a 20 to 30 minute session in a public park, then having access to parks at a walking distance is much more important than having this large iconic park that is mostly inaccessible in your daily commute. We have seen many studies that there is buffers and when more far you walk or live far from the parks, less benefits. And we have identified some thresholds. Uh, normally we are in between 500 meters, ideally in 300 meters from home. So that's, that's the reason I try to mention often I say we need parks, even the small parks across the whole city. If you have a large park, you say, well, this park is benefiting a lot of people. Actually, not everyone goes to those parks daily to do physical activity. And those that really are benefit the most are those that live in that 300 or 500 meter buffer from the park. If you only have one single park, it's just one buffer of people that will benefit. If you have tons or small parks, you have more opportunities to provide benefits to larger communities. The most recent health studies highlight how in order to have all of these health benefits from our parks and our green spaces, you need to use them regularly. And for us to use open spaces regularly, they need to be within a five to 10 minute walk of our home or our work. And this is where it starts to get complicated because in most modern cities, a large portion of the population does not have a park 500 meters away from home. And even if they did, there are many other barriers of entry to parks. So if people don't have attractive open space to visit close by to where they spend their time during the day, they're very unlikely to visit frequently. 
Um, so that's a prerequisite. And if you're a very old person with mobility impairment, or indeed you may not be old, but still have mobility impairment, uh, you may be a, a carer or a parent with very young children, your mobility is again restricted for different reasons, then that, that is doubly important that you have local access to local space. Um, there are other reasons why people might feel space is not accessible to them. They may feel unwelcome. The physical access to the space may be difficult. Uh, it may not be good public transport to get to. There may be a busy road to cross. All of these can be barriers. You may not feel welcome. It may not feel like the space that's right for you. Perhaps you come from an ethnic group that doesn't feel welcome in certain spaces. Now, there can be a mixture of physical, social, and psychological barriers to accessing your nearest park. And once you step inside, the quality of your local park can be vastly different among different cities and different areas within a city. One of the things we've been really interested in is, you know, we know, you know, my work in the U.S., but also around the world, that access to parks and to greenness is not equitably distributed, and the quality of those spaces is not equitably distributed. And so the people who would benefit, who we've been showing in research, benefit the most from having parks or having greenness near their home, have the least amount of it. This is Dr. Jamie Hart, environmental epidemiologist and associate professor at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As Dr. Hart mentions, access to green space is particularly important to people with lower socioeconomic status, and it makes a bigger difference to their health outcomes than it does to the wealthier spectrum of the population who, you know, have other means of accessing health. But unfortunately, in many cases, parks are not being equitably distributed. Most investments are actually going to wealthier city areas instead of to the people who need it most. Now, this isn't necessarily done out of malice, but it is a mixture of historic inequalities, lack of foresight, and a lack of information and research that is available for cities to make adequate decisions about where to invest in new parks. We talked a lot about this on our 10th episode with Trust for Public Land, so go check that out after we're done here. But because of just how important parks are for health, especially for the most vulnerable citizens of a city, public health professionals are joining forces to bridge that information gap and to create better health visions of parks. And now, creating more equitable park investments means ensuring that everyone can enjoy a park and reap its benefits by focusing on creating and improving parks where there are fewer or just no public spaces, rather than where there are already plenty. So by bringing a health aspect, a health vision into the equation of park investments, city planners can actually make decisions with the numbers, with the tangible benefits that parks bring to their populations, to their citizens' health. So I think what's been really interesting is that health is often left out of the conversation when we're talking about parks at a, you know, municipality or a governmental level. You know, it's, it's about other services that are, you know, but it's not being explicitly tied to health. And so what's been very interesting is there's a couple very new studies that are trying to explicitly tie things like in the case of what I showed, a tree planting program in Portland, Oregon, specifically 
to reductions in mortality and being able to monetize that to say to a city, for example, your most expensive tree takes $14,000 US a year to maintain, but the benefit if we did that around the city would be $14 million in avoided deaths. And so that's a pretty substantial difference between the, in, you know, the money that has to go in to get the money out and the tricky part, especially you know, in countries where the government is not paying for the health insurance, that disconnect between who's paying and who's reaping the benefit has made it a real challenge to bring health into the conversation in some places like the U.S., where you know public and you know public and private insurers are bearing the burden of the health costs, but the government is bearing the burden of providing the parks and trying to bridge that distance between them, and even in some cases get insurers to be interested in helping to provide parks in areas where their members are because they see that there may be a benefit to them financially for their business model. In collaboration with the World Health Organization, Dr. Rojas is trying to do just that. I have the opportunity and, and the WHO, the World Health Organization, is very active working with urban planners, mayors, uh, with cities to improve the local environments. And one of those aspects that we have found uh, will provide the largest benefits is greener spaces and vegetation and parks. So the WHO is now working in, in creating tools to help mayors, those that are working not in the health department, in the parks and recreation departments, in the environment department in the cities, to really think about how I can include health, the health vision, the health dimension in our, in our planning uh, exercise. So for that reason, we are almost finalizing this this tool, and what the tool does is just map your city. You, you try to identify well, the city that you are located. Try to map your city and use layers of information to say, well, where the vegetation or the parks or the gardens are located. So what is the amount of land dedicated in your city or in the city of uh, interest compared to the land that is available. So i give you a proportion of the land for the amount of land that is dedicated to parks. GreenUR is a geographical information system-based plugin. In other words, it is a map-based document that you can download on your computer and open with the open source app QGIS. The application uses existing city map information combined with the GreenUR plugin to map the existing parks in a given city. The application also maps out the percentage of people who live in proximity to parks, showcasing how well distributed the city's parks are. In addition to that, the tool had the possibility to quantify what is the amount of health for those that live in proximity that can be modified. Uh, that means improve or increase the risk. Due to improve due to the access, the quantity of vegetation, and the risk due to the, the lack of, uh, uh, of the, of the parts of the green spaces. So the tool quantifies premature mortality. Uh, how many premature deaths can be already saved by the city because they already have a park network in the city. Using these health markers, the tool can identify the number of people that can benefit from and the number of premature deaths that can be avoided, reduced, or postponed each year due to the parks that already exist. The tool already provided this kind of health data 
But in addition to that, allows the user to plan, what if I want to expand my, my parks? So you can draw or select where you want to add a new park. And we'll tell you how many deaths will save if you create a new park in different locations. The tool is designed to help city planners know what decisions will produce the largest health benefits. In other words, where new parks can help reduce premature mortality the most. Now, the tool is a couple of months away from being released to the public, and it's currently being tested in cities around the world. And trust me, you're going to be the first to know when it does come out. But these types of new technologies can help city planners be proactive about their citizens' health and create equitable park investments that will lead to longer, healthier, and happier lives for all of their citizens. It sounds great, right? Yeah, and I think the thing that's fascinating is, you know, especially in the U.S. and in Europe, parks were originally designed for public health. They were designed to give people places that they could get out of their crowded living spaces and exist in. And so I think it was really interesting during the pandemic how different, you know, states, governments, countries around the world approached parks as either something that they shut down and didn't want people to go to or as a place where people could still go and safely interact. And I think that was really interesting to see. But we've got research, there's research coming out around the world that places with more parks had less severe outbreaks of COVID in some cases, even if they had equal levels of socioeconomic status and other risk factors. The pandemic shook the health world. Not only did it completely shift how we moved, how we ate, how we behaved around people for months or years, but it also highlighted really quickly what were some of the community's biggest problems and areas of opportunities. One of them, as Dr. Hart mentioned, was people's access to parks. We saw that when people in the nations where people were encouraged to socially isolate, but yet they could go out and about their communities, we saw an incredible surge everywhere around the world in people wanting to be outside and wanting to move around. Dr. Kathleen Wolf again. And maintaining at least some level of contact with their neighborhood, with other people. And what we also saw, and this is some research that um, I did with colleagues, we found that family units might have spent more time together to the benefit of children. Because when kids spend more time with adults, be it their parents, their grandparents, other adults in nearby households and communities, we see that they have modeling, behavior modeling, they have encouragement, and in a, if you will, um, uh, they, they rely on others to assist them, to help them develop who they are and what they understand. During the pandemic, parks filled with people, young and old, who were trying to escape their isolation and see familiar and unfamiliar faces. And, you know, get some steps in, breathe fresh air. And this shed light to just how important parks are for people's mental, physical, and social health. I have been studying nature and health and human response for nearly 40 years. So the research is out there and has been out there for decades. But there is something about the pandemic, maybe one of the positive sides of the pandemic, is the recognition of the importance of parks, that they're not simply beautiful and wonderful in an aesthetic way, but they're fundamental to our health, our wellness, and how people engage with community. So with all these changes and new developments, what can we do? 
how can we go beyond advocating for just more parks, better parks? What can we as citizens, as park enthusiasts, as park professionals, our city planners, do to ensure that everyone has access to the free healthcare that is green public spaces? Now that we have the attention of uh, the decision makers and elected officials to assure that everyone in, who lives in the city has access to parks. So look carefully at how many parks we might have, where are they distributed, and are people able to access them. So equitable access is really important. So that's one level. The next level is in relationship to health. What I'm seeing in my work of late is working with planning, city planning, community planning, to um, if we're building a park or if we have a park and are thinking about its uses, how do we be more intentional about health response? Because there are micromanagement or micro-design things that can, that can boost the mental health and physical health possibilities of a park, but it's another level of design, it's another level of management that we're only coming now to understand because of the research. Obviously people should be free to do what they want. They should enjoy being outdoors and in public spaces. We want that to remain the case, but if we know that there are benefits, health benefits from being in these places, mental health as well as physical, social health benefits, then we want everyone to feel able to get those benefits in a way that is pleasant, feels good to them. So we need to explore, to work with different groups and, as you say, to have activities, perhaps uh, animate parks with different kinds of activities that will attract different groups, that maybe engage with groups who traditionally have not felt so comfortable in parks to feel that it's a place that they can go to as well. So building a park gets us halfway there but helping people engage with the park through programming and activities that promote people's health, that's where we can all pitch in. So thinking about programming, thinking about the facilities, thinking about the care of management of the space, thinking about how to engage and invite people who may not be accustomed to going to the parks. And some of the studies I've seen about park use suggest that programming is really important. So having a walking program, yoga in the park, dance in the park. So making the most use of these spaces by way of how you have intentional programs and activities that welcome people and people of all ages. So for children, what might be suitable programs? For elders, like myself, what might be suitable programs? And thinking about the facilities that are needed to help support those programs. Having that 10-minute walk, again, the research suggests, it doesn't assure that people will actually use the park. And so having the 10-minute walk as a physical goal and then the programming as an activity goal, that's a really nice combination. I am always in awe of how at home we feel when we are in nature. And although, as we said in the start, we've always known that humans respond well to outdoor spaces, when I hear these developments and find about this research firsthand, and when we start to study and uncover the way our brain and our lungs and our hearts react to parks, well, it, it just makes me want to get out and enjoy them even more. Oh. <sighs> 
This marks the end of today's episode. Keep out with next week's episode to discover a new approach to bring nature into the city. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode, and please leave us a review to help reach more park enthusiasts around the world. And if you want to connect with like-minded individuals and don't know where to start, visit worldurbanparks.org. Now, before we go, I want to invite you to a quick meditation exercise, if you will. Go out to your nearest park and close your eyes. What do you smell? What do you hear? How do you feel? Is your heartbeat racing? Or are you finding peace and slowing down the pace of your breaths? And how does each breath differ from the ones that you take at home? Now, if you like that feeling, I want to invite you to just go back out there and enjoy your park. <laughs>